super glad of that. Uh, and if you're listening online and you found us, we're excited about that too. Uh, glad to have you along for uh, this journey that we're on. Uh, we are doing a series that uh, was kind of inspired by a series by Andy Stanley. It was called 90. It was basically taking a look at the life of Jesus from Christmas all the way till Easter. And so we're doing this similar thing. Some of it is um, alongside of his. Uh, some of it is just uh, completely separate, just of what we believe that uh, God is calling for us uh, in this church in this time. Uh, and so we're on part five. If you missed some of the other parts, I encourage you to go back and listen to them online. The question we've been challenging ourselves with is this. If we call ourselves a Christian, are we actually following Jesus? Because Christian means so many different things in our culture. And so the challenge has been, am I actually following Jesus? And there's really only one way to know, and that's to just look at the teachings of Jesus and say, okay, if I line my life up with that, am I doing what Jesus would call me to do, or am I doing my own thing? And the reason we have the teachings of Jesus is because there was men uh, in, this, in that time period who actually wrote these documents. Uh, Luke was one of the ones we've been looking at primarily because he, he wrote to non-Jewish people. He said, I, I thoroughly investigated everything. I'm not making up a story. There was many people who wanted to write what happened among us. And so he says, I'm, I'm writing down what happened. And uh, others have done the same. But he says, I want to make sure you've got like a thorough, accurate account of uh, what Jesus has done. And so that's one of the places we focus, but there's others as well. Matthew uh, wrote, uh, he was an eyewitness of Jesus and wrote down what he experienced. Um, we know that Mark was, a, a, according to the early church fathers, was a, a friend of Peter's, and so he wrote down what Peter was dictating. For those of you who think, oh, you know, uh, those dumb fishermen couldn't have wrote it, uh, they could dictate it. Uh, and then John as well, you know, an eyewitness follower of Jesus, uh, writing some stuff. So last week, last week our thought and what we focused on is that Jesus came to start something brand new. He didn't come to continue the Old Testament. He didn't come to, like, to, to make Judaism more cool, more hip, get rid of circumcision, and then everybody will want to join Judaism. That wasn't his thing. He was starting something brand new, brand new. And it's so important for us to realize that it's brand new because otherwise we're so tempted to keep the old and the new together and that's just really confusing for people and it actually results in legalism and results in a lack of grace and so that's what we looked at last week. So I want to just start this morning from that point. Somebody had come up to me after the service last Saturday and said, there's still some things in my life that feel like the, like the old things kind of hanging on in my life. Um, it's okay, it's just people finding seats, it's all good. That's right, Sharon, to the back. All right. But let me ask you this question. You got any old stuff hanging around in your life still? Oh, yeah. Any, anybody have old stuff hanging around in your house? You know, you know when you find that? When you move. Uh, all of a sudden, you like go through stuff. And when we moved uh, six months ago, I found that we had tons of boxes of stuff that I didn't have anymore. The coffee maker box was in the closet, but there's no coffee maker anymore. I had boxes for my phones and cameras, all these boxes that I kept in, and that I didn't have any of, those, any of the stuff from those boxes left. Then I found a box of receipts that's 15 years old. And I'm like, that means I've carried it with me through two moves. It's time for it to go. And then I had another box that just had cords, like cords and cords and cords. I don't even know what the cords were for. Uh, and then, but then I realized that um, uh, some of them were for some old phones. So if the LG Fusic, this phone, ever comes back, I have two chargers for that one. So I'm keeping them. Um, and then you find weird stuff. I found this little box with my wisdom teeth in it. I know. I'm like, who keeps that? I thought, why did I keep it? Maybe I thought, someday I'm going to need more wisdom. Or maybe I'm going to need more teeth, but I'm keeping those. So I've kept them as well. But sometimes we keep stuff, and 
We have a hard time getting rid of it. One of the things that I have difficulty getting rid of is if somebody gives me something. If somebody gives me something, it's why I wear stuff that's out of fashion for 10 years. It's because someone gave it to me, and I'm going to cherish it for, for as long as it lives or as long as I live. Uh, but what I've realized is sometimes we allow our stuff to come between our relationships. We'll put stuff, we'll, we'll value stuff over relationship. We wouldn't say it, but when it comes down to the stuff or the person, the stuff is what kind of seems to take precedence. Um, I remember, I was reminded of when, uh, when, when we first got married, when Beth and I first got married, uh, I, in my previously married life, my single life, I had a collection of California raisins. Um, I don't know if anybody's seen those. <laughs> Is, uh, weren't they the greatest? For those of you who are too young to remember the California raisins, like, I heard it through the grapevine. Like they, this was like, they had CDs, and they had, like, the figures, and they had all kinds of stuff. Well, somebody knew that I was collecting these, and I had a number of those ones, and, and they gave me these large version hand-painted porcelain um, California raisins. Uh, well, okay, they were actually plaster molds and that some kid had painted, but they gave them to me anyways. And I was like, man, they just know my love language. This is like so great. So in my house in, in uh, Hagersville, we had just lived in this little house and we had our living room. And we had it like on the main, on the main wall where everything, everybody looks, there was, this, there was this shelf, an Ikea shelf, one of the kind of the straight ones that sticks out. And then above that, we had another shelf. And under that, we had mounted two lights and the lights would shine down on the shelf below. And so I thought that is the perfect place for these California raisins. So I put the two raisins, these gaudy purple raisins, uh, under the two lights, and I was like, they, they were there for a long time. And I thought, man, like, that, that is just, it's awesome. Then one day I came home and they were gone. Beth and I have differing uh, opinions when it comes to decor. And so I checked the garbage that day and I looked for any like evidence of their demise and I didn't see anything. And so I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know where they went. I searched my house, I couldn't find them. A couple weeks later, I find them. They're in a box at the church yard sale. And I was like, what? Can't believe it. And they were on sale. So I bought them back, and I returned them to their rightful place in her house. Well, that showed up, and that led to a really heartfelt conversation. It was also very loud. And somewhere in there, there was something like, it's either me or the raisins. And I'm like, well, I'm going to miss you. No, it didn't get that heated. But it was like this thing of, if the raisins are not staying here any one more, one more day. And I'm like, yes, they are. And, and I went to bed, and uh, they disappeared permanently. I still have never found those raisins back. But when I think about that conversation, that heated conversation over a couple of piece of junk raisins uh, with this wonderful woman in my life. What's happening there? The stuff is, is somehow has more value than the relationship with this person. And we do it with all kinds of things. Uh, uh, maybe we just won't put ourselves in the box. We'll talk about other people. It's, it's just easier that way. But have you ever met somebody who like put their religion over people? Like the religion that was supposed to help people, that kind of became against people. Have you ever met somebody who's used Bible verses against you or against other people, you know, in, in a condemning sort of way? You know, they, 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 they use, um, they say, hey, you know, you, you can't, you, you, that you walk into their church, but you've got a tattoo, and they kind of all look at you like, like the, those kind of things, where the religion that was supposed to help people is actually the thing that they value over people. Well, that's not new. As we follow the life of Jesus today, we're going to discover a couple things. And my hope this morning is you listen really carefully because not only do, are we going to discover that, but two really good reasons that I would ask you to consider. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to consider these two reasons for following him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to learn these two things because there's a number of people around you in your workplace, in your school, 
that will have questions and, and wonder about their you know, reasons to why would anybody follow Jesus. Here's a couple to think about. So let's just jump right in. As Jesus traveled around uh, Judea and Israel, there was great crowds that followed him. Matthew chapter 7, Matthew tells us when Jesus finished saying these things, he said the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And, uh, and he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. How did they know that? Probably because they said, wow, you teach with authority, not like the teachers of religious law. Well, it's interesting also to note, Luke lets us know in Luke 5.17 that one day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby who probably would have heard when the people said, wow, Jesus, you're awesome. You're not like the teachers of religious law. And it says they, I love how Luke says this. He says, it just seemed like these men showed up from every village uh, in all of Galilee and Judea as well as from Jerusalem. So wherever Jesus was, these guys always sort of showed up. And uh, we have a picture of uh, what uh, they may have looked like, their, their, their uh, attire. But, um, and just leave this picture up there. They, these people would follow Jesus around not because they liked Jesus. They didn't like him at all, actually. They were, they were completely against him. Uh, and they would always, as, as, as he would do things, it would, it would, it would um, infuriate them. There was a man uh, once where uh, he was let down through the roof. And Jesus, he said, you know what? He healed, he healed the man. He said, you know what? Also, your sins are forgiven. He, and they were like, that's blasphemy. Who does this guy think he is? He, how can he say that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. He thinks he's God? And they'd be all angry. Then uh, as they follow Jesus a little further, they, they watch as Jesus calls a tax collector. Nobody liked tax collectors back then. I don't think too many people like tax collectors today either. But back then, they really hated them. These guys were traitors. And there's Jesus saying, hey, Matthew, uh, you know what? Why don't you come follow me? Why don't you come be a part of our group? And Peter and James are like, we don't want him in our group. He's like, listen, he's, he's in our group. And as they follow him, well, these guys, these Pharisees, the religious leaders around would say to the disciples, hey, Peter, why is your master hanging out with, such, with those people? Don't, don't, doesn't he realize they're the scum of the earth? I like how the Bible uses the word scum. He says, look at those people. Why is Jesus hanging out with those people? And some of us have some of those people in our lives. It's those people we avoid. You know, maybe for you, it's the Saturday night crowd. You're like, this is why I go Sunday morning. I don't want to be around those people. You know, or maybe it's the um, people who, whatever, you know, people that you consider to be living a lifestyle different than yours, but they're those people. Well, Jesus says, he explained to them that he had come to do something brand new. And we see this underlying all the time. Here in Luke chapter 5, verse 36, Luke writes it down. He says, Jesus gave this illustration. He says, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment because then the new garment's going to be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins for the new wine would burst and the wineskins spilling the wine would ruin the skins. He says, the new and the old, they just don't mix. And he says, new wine must be stored in new wineskins. And then in verse 39, he, with all of these people listening around, he says, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. And the religious leaders are like, he's talking about us, isn't he? He's, ta he's talking about us. We, we love the old. Moses gave us the old. Who do you think you are trying to bring something brand new? And, and he's like, yeah, he says, those kind of people, they, they think the old is just fine. But he's saying that there's something new coming. And so they were so angry. They were like, we've got, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so they just followed him along from then on, trying to find ways that they could trap him. If he would do something unlawful, they could arrest him. And so they kept, kept watching uh, for things and opportunities that, that, that could happen. And so one day they're sitting all in their, in their, in their um, synagogue, and there was a man there with a crippled hand, and they all knew it. 
And they watched, and they saw Jesus seize the man with the crippled hand. They're like, oh, man, he can't pass this up. He's going to heal that guy. But if he does, we're going we're gonna to charge him with working on the Sabbath. And so, I love this. Jesus says he knew their thoughts. For some of you, that's scary today. He's like, he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. Instead of just healing the man, he knew that they would be upset with him. And he still, he just asked this question. Hey, um, just, just wondering, is it, is it against the law to do good on the Sabbath? And they're all like, well, no. He's like, okay, be healed. And the man's healed. And they're like, oh, I got us again. And then they begin outside. They're like, hey, Jesus, we got a question for you. Um, do you think we should be paying taxes? Is it, is it lawful to pay taxes? And they were just hoping Jesus would say, you know, don't pay taxes because then Rome will kill them. And if he says, yep, you should pay the taxes, well, then everybody's going to leave them. We got them this time. And Jesus has that wonderful comment of saying, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. You know, Caesar owns the money, but God owns you. You give your life to, to Christ or to God. And, and uh, they would be like, oh, he got us again. And so then the one day they show up at the temple and they drag this woman with them. And we're going to look at her story in more detail somewhere uh, down the road. But they grab her. They caught her in the act of adultery. So that late, the, the night before, they found this woman. They dragged her from this, from this bed and they brought her, you know, down to the temple. And they just waited. They just waited. They had their rocks. They picked up rocks in their hand. There she is, that group of men standing around. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, I've got a question for you. We're in the temple and the law is right over there. Well, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone her. We can't wait. But what do you say? We would have stoned her last night, but we just want to know what your thoughts were on it. And what does Jesus say? He says, go ahead, stone her. But the first one, the first person to throw a stone, let that be the person who has no sin. Whoever has no sin, you throw the first stone. I'll start looking. They realize in that moment, ah, I loved the stone more than the life of another person. I just couldn't wait to use the stone against the life of another person. See, the problem is that anytime that people try to use the word of God to dishonor people who are in God's or made in the image of God, Jesus had something to say about it. And he would stop them every single time in such ways that they had never had anything against him. But they followed and tried to, tried to trap him nonetheless. Matthew writes about this account. He says, about that time, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, about that time Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. Can you picture it? He's taking a few little grains of, of wheat. It says, but some Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested. And they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are breaking the law. We got you this time. They're breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Well, picking a few grains and harvesting are two completely different things, but they're so tied to the old that that's all they can see. Verse 3, Jesus said to them, this is funny. He says, haven't you read in the scriptures? That's all they're paid to do. That'd be like asking the pastor, hey, have you ever read your Bible? You know, that's, he's like, haven't you read in the scriptures? And he says, and, and, and haven't you read about David? And they're like, David. Yeah, like that's our hero. Yeah, we've read about David. He says, didn't you read about what he did when him and his companions were hungry one day? He says, what did they do? He says, they went into the house of God. They didn't go into a grain field on the Sabbath. They actually went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law. He probably did this. He probably invented this. <laughs> he bro they broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread, the sacred loaves, the things that you hold so sacred. He says that only the priests are allowed to eat. And they're like, oh, 
our hero did it. Yeah, you're right. We probably shouldn't hold it against these guys. Verse 5, he says, And haven't you read in the law of Moses? They memorized the law of Moses. He's like, haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? They're like, oh. That's like that thing where people think I only work on one day of the week. You know, that, that Sundays is the day I work. That's what he's saying to them. Hey, don't you realize the pastor works on Sunday? You're like, okay, you got us. He says this, I tell you, there's one here who's even greater than the temple. We referenced this last week. We're going to dig into it this morning. He says, there's one greater than the temple. He says, you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of, if you knew the meaning of Scripture. He says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. He's like, God didn't create you know, the, um, men for the, to honor the Sabbath day. He created the Sabbath day for men. And they're like, well, back it up a second. You said somebody greater than the temple is here. And this would have been super offensive to them. See, when we read through Scripture, we just kind of read it in our, like, North American mindset. We don't really do temples. We don't have a lot of them around. Anybody been to temple this year? No? Just in case there's a few Mormons here, we'll check. They're the only ones that I know that have temples in, in North America. That, that we just don't do temples the same way. And they would say, you know, Jesus, you think you're greater than the temple? And I think they would stop them and say, okay, Jesus, we have some explaining to do to you. You know, you're 30 years old. The temple's been here long before you got here, and it will be here long after um, you, uh, you leave. And, and this is God's sacred temple. There's nothing greater than this. And I think Jesus probably would have thought, and never said, but he probably would have thought, you know what, hey, God never asked for a temple. That was never, his plan was never this thing, this building. That was never his thing. If you look back in the Old Testament, you can see where the temple came from. And I want just to tell you the story so you understand their heart for this building. Um, back in the day when God chose Abraham, he, he, the, the whole world you know, was, was this uh, against God. And God picks out this man, Abraham, and says, Abraham, I want to start with you. I want to try and bring salvation into the world. We're going to start with you. He says, I want you to leave where, you're, where you've been. I want you to go somewhere new. I want you to trust me. And Abraham began to trust God, and as a result, you know, Abram had a, uh, a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had a bunch of kids. Uh, one of them was Joseph. And so throughout the, um, the thing, this nation called Israel was born. And he said to the nation of Israel, I'm calling you out from all the other nations. I want you to be, he rescued them from Egypt and said, I want you to be different from everyone else. And they're like, okay, we'll be different from everyone else. And then he gave instructions to Moses saying, listen, I'm, I want you to worship me as the God who rescued you. And he gave him the instructions on how to build a tabernacle. So the tabernacle looked something like this. It was a big tent uh, and surrounded by the other things, that part over the purple part there, that's kind of the tabernacle. That was what they were familiar with. It was this portable building that they could carry with them. Wherever they went, wherever God led them to go, they could take this with them and know that the presence of God was with them. But after they had taken this and they had gone and conquered a whole bunch of lands. They, uh, they said, we want a king. God's like, why do you want a king? Like, everyone else has a king. And he's like, I don't want you to be like everyone else. Yeah, well, we want a king. He's like, oh, okay, fine. You're not going to like this, but okay. And he allowed them to have a king. And one of those kings was a guy named David. And King David was sitting in his palace one day. And he looks out the window and he sees the tent. And he's like, this isn't right. He's like, I'm the king and I live in a palace and God lives in a tent. And so he says to the prophet, hey, I want to build God a temple. And the prophet says, go ahead and do all that you want to do. God is with you. And that night the prophet has a dream. 
And God says, listen, don't tell him that I'm with him and all this stuff. He says, you just said that. He's like, what I really mean is go tell him that I'm fine living in the tent. I didn't ask for a temple. I'm not, I never asked you to build me a temple. You can read that in 2 Samuel. Well, David's like, I don't care. I still want to build a temple. He's like, well, you're not going to like this, but okay. I'll let your son build it. So David didn't build it, but Solomon built it. And Solomon spared no expense. And here's the temple or a picture of the temple that he built. Pretty incredible, right? God just got an upgrade, got a better home. And so then uh, they were like, now God's in a permanent place. We've got him right where we want him. And they, they said, we want to build you a temple because all the other great nations have great temples for their great gods. This was built in 960 B.C., and the temple sacrifices were moved into there. Well, three, about 374 years later, the Babylonians came, and they destroyed the city, and they destroyed this temple. And they took four famous men with them back to Babylon. Any, any idea who they were? Shadrach, yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. Know the story? They took them and destroyed this temple. Well, 48 years later, Cyrus allowed the, the, um, the, some of the Jews to go back to Israel. And so they went back to Israel, and he said, you can build a temple, but not like that. You can build a little temple. I don't want you guys thinking your God's great. You build a little temple. And so it's, Ezra talks about where they built a little temple. And he says that actually the people who remembered this one, who were there to see the new one, they wept. They were so sad that you know, the, the, the glorious temple was no more, and they just were getting this tiny little temple. Well, that temple lasts another 300 years, and uh, uh, 48 years um, later is when they finished building this one. But the 300 years after that, King Herod, a Roman vassal king, was, was put over to oversee all of uh, Israel for Rome. And as he, as he was overseeing Rome, he said to the, to the Jewish people, he's like, you guys, your temple sucks. He's like, would you let me build you a better one? And they said, yeah, okay, that would be great. And so Herod decided to build a temple, and this is it. You see Solomon's in the middle there, like Solomon's, and then he just built this massive thing, 37 acres of temple. And he says, this is my gift to you. And they, the, the people who had seen him, it took 46 years to build this. They saw this amazing, amazing temple, and they loved this temple to the point where they realized, you know, this thing's going to last forever. Well, Herod had designed it that way. He had actually caused uh, people to, to go and to take these massive stones. They were uh, well over 100 tons in weight. And they built the foundation for that temple with these massive, massive stones. Some of them were 44 feet long, 16 feet wide, 11 feet tall. Huge, huge stones. And they built this, this whole place. Uh, and it was designed to be earthquake-proof. Nothing was going to ever take this temple down. And the people loved this temple enough that they would give their lives for it. The people sitting there listening to Jesus when he said, someone greater than the temple is here, they so believed that this temple was, was the, the greatness of God that they would literally put their lives on the line for it. Forty years later, the Roman uh, Emperor Caligula, he decided he wanted to send a statue because there was no statue in the temple because they didn't have one. He said, I'm going to send one of me to put in the temple. Well, he asked Petronius, which was the governor at that time, to take this statue and bring it to the temple. As Petronius was bringing it there, he got to the border of Israel, and, and, the, and all of a sudden he was confronted with thousands of Jewish people. Peasants from everywhere gathered, and they, they stood in the roadway and said, that is not going in our temple. That will never go in our temple. We will stand here as long as it takes till you turn that thing around. And Petronius did what every Roman would do, grabbed his sword and said, all right, who wants to die first? And he was surprised by what happened. Their reaction, you can watch it if you want on um, Netflix on the uh, AD Kingdom and Empire, shows just a really great thing uh, of this. But what they did is they, uh, as he said, who wants to die first? Thousands and thousands and thousands of them pulled back their, 
pulled back their shirts or their shawls and got down on their knees and said, start with us. Thousands of them. Well, Petronius realized, if I start killing these people, this isn't war. This is genocide. This will start an uprising I will not be able to control. So he sends a letter to Emperor Caligula saying, I don't think, I, I don't know what to do. Give me some advice. Knowing full well that he could lose his job or lose his life for sending that letter. He was supposed to do what the emperor said no matter what. Fortunate for him and for the Jews, Caligula was assassinated before the letter ever got to him. And so their crisis was averted. But these people that were sitting around listening to Jesus say, someone greater than the temple, they're like, no one is greater than the temple. Not the emperor, not Caligula, not, not the priest, not, not even you, Jesus. No one is greater than this temple. And this morning, for those of you who are skeptical of faith in Jesus, I want you to listen to this next part really, really closely. Luke chapter, 20, um, Luke chapter 21. Some of his disciples began talking. They were in the temple. And he says, some of them began talking, verse 5, about the majestic stonework of the temple. Remember those massive stones we were talking about? They're like, Jesus, look at these massive stones. Aren't they, isn't that so impressive? Like, can you believe that they, put the, they built this massive temple with these massive stones? And then it just says, Jesus says this in verse 6. He said to them, fellas, the, the time's coming when all these things are going to be completely demolished. They look and they're like, what? He's like, not even one of these stones is going to be standing on top of another. And they're like, oh, come on, Jesus. That's not possible. Herod built this. It's earthquake-proof. Like, there is not a force on the planet that can tear those stones off from, uh, from this, this place. But then later it says that a bunch of them came around Jesus. And verse 7, it says this. It says, teacher, they asked, when's this going to happen? Like, we've seen you do incredibly miraculous stuff. I mean, it sounds far-fetched, but part of us believes you. So when? When's that going to happen? And if you're a skeptic, you know, I would encourage you to read Luke chapter 21 of Jesus' response to that question. Read it for yourself. Fact check what happens in this next little bit. They could not believe that the temple would be torn down. But Jesus says a few verses later in Luke 21, he says, listen, when the army starts surrounding the city, you'll know. It's about to happen. And if you're in the city, get out. And it, he says, and pray that your wife's not pregnant when that happens. Because it's going to be really, really bad for them. He says, just, just get out. He says, you'll know. And he doesn't like say it in like this super proud way. He just answers their question. Well, here's the interesting part. I find fascinating. 40 years later, after this conversation, can you picture Jesus sitting at the temple there and just pointing out and saying, hey, all these stones are coming down? 40 years later, the Jews revolt against Rome. The, the, they attack the Roman legion that's in Jerusalem, and they actually defeat the Roman legion. And they get this false sense of swagger thinking, we're going to defeat Rome. It's going to happen. They had all kinds of factions of, of leaders who were trying to um, take over control of the Jerusalem people. But just that one victory caused all the Jewish people to think, we, we're done. Rome is done. Well, the emperor Nero sent two men, Vespasian and his son Titus, and said, go to Judea and bring back order no matter what the cost. And so that's exactly what happened. Vespasian and Titus started in northern, um, northern uh, Judea, and they began to work their way all the way down, going from town to town, bringing peace by whatever means necessary, literally slaughtering people. Any, any pr pr group of people that uh, resisted and left, they all sort of made their way south to Jerusalem. Well, um, uh, Vespasian and, and Titus made their way to Jerusalem. On the way, Nero committed suicide, and so Vespasian became the new emperor. So he left and said, Titus, I want you to finish the job. 
And so his son Titus went and they built a wall, a siege wall around Jerusalem. And as they were building this wall, all of a sudden they saw crowds of people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And they were going to try and keep them out. And Titus was like, no, let them in. Because as long as there's more people eating in that, in that city, starvation will happen quicker. So they, let, they would actually bring the people to the gates. And once they were in, they left them in there. They built this huge stone wall and they began attacking the walls of Jerusalem uh, night after night, day after day. Inside the Jewish people, they were all arguing about who was going to be the next king. And they were fighting with one another as well. Well, on August 30th, the year 70, 40 years after Jesus had made this claim, the Romans broke through those walls and they slaughtered everybody that they could see. One million Jews died that, in, that, in that war. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us, tells us the details. He said, Titus has said, don't touch the temple. It's 500 years old. Leave their temple alone, but destroy everything else. Well, and they're fighting with the Jews. They hoarded themselves in the temple and they lit their own temple on fire by accident. And once the temple was on fire, Titus said, just plunder it and get everything out of the temple and, uh, and, and he says, and, and just burn it to the ground. And so they did. They burned it to the ground. Well, the temple uh, had gold that melted and was running down in between all the big stones. And so the, the, the Roman legions, the 10th legion, began to tear those stones, dragging them off one another, dragging them over the edge of the cliff and down into the streets and the cliffs below. And they tore every single stone off that building, just as Jesus had said. He didn't say they were going to fall down. He said, not one of, all of these stones will be thrown down. What an incredible prediction. The Arch of Titus still exists today. You can see it uh, if you travel to Rome. It was as a monument to his incredible uh, victory over Jerusalem. Then uh, inside is this picture uh, which was carved. And you can see this is, you know, when, in Exodus when they describe the, the seven candlesticks. This is actually a picture. Uh, they didn't have pictures back then. But here's a carving of what that thing looked like. And it was pretty, pretty incredible. But what's most incredible is that Jesus had predicted that this would happen. And it was the end of the temple, and it was the end of temple sacrifices, and it was the end of Judaism, uh, ancient Judaism, as it was known. It never started again. Well, it's fascinating that Jesus predicted it, but here's something even more uh, fascinating to consider. Matthew and Mark and Luke all wrote about that conversation with Jesus. And one of the things that's interesting about Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that they all write throughout their, um, throughout their uh, gospel writings, uh, they, they write things like, hey, Jesus said this, and we didn't understand what he meant, but then later we understood. When Jesus was riding into, into town on a donkey, they said, you know, we didn't understand what he was doing then. But later, after he rose from the dead, we were like, that's the prophecy of the king riding in on a donkey. Um, uh, they had said, too, like when Jesus said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. They're like, we don't know what that means. But after he rose from the dead, they're like, but this is what it meant. We, we now know. And he says, and before um, he had said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times when a, and a rooster's going to crow. And he's like, no, Jesus, I'm going to follow you forever. And then all of a sudden he denied him three times and a rooster crows. And what did they write? Peter remembered what Jesus had said. What's really interesting is that the one thing, the one prophecy that Jesus made that would prove that he was who he said he was, was the temple. It's verifiable evidence that what Jesus had said had happened, and yet none of them write about it. Why do none of them write about it? I'd like to suggest this morning that none of them wrote about it because it hadn't happened yet. And why is that important? Because if you go to university today and you go, you know, you'll hear people talk about the Bible, and they'll discount all of the stuff with the Gospels. You can't believe some fishermen's stories. And actually, those things were written hundreds of years after Christ. Anybody heard that? Those, you can't trust what those people wrote, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written hundreds of years after. 
This is proof that they weren't. They didn't write about the one thing. How could they resist writing about the one major thing that would prove their story to be true if they were creating a story? They didn't write about it because it hadn't happened yet. They were writing after the resurrection, but they wrote before the, the, um, the temple had been destroyed and that, that Jesus had predicted something so incredible that we know now, and the church fathers, the early church fathers wrote, said, yeah, this is, this is proof. This is something that's reliable and can be trusted. Luke says, I investigated everything thoroughly. So when he's writing, he's saying it hadn't happened yet. It's why he didn't write about it. But, that, but it had happened. And it proves something. It's something to think about, that this man that can make that kind of prediction and that it would happen 40 years later without him being involved in it in any way, you got to think there's something different about him. Something to consider. But one other thing that I'd like you to consider is this. That Jesus predicted the end of the temple and it happened, but he also predicted that something new was going to happen. Something new, something improved, something universal for the whole world, something portable. Something portable. 20 years after the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, there was a man named Paul, Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul by his Roman name. He uh, was an anti anti-Jesus person who met Jesus and became a Jesus follower. And as a result, he went around sharing the gospel with everyone, the good news with everyone. Uh, Luke wrote about the life of Paul in, in the, the letter we have called Acts. In Acts chapter 17, he said this. Paul's talking to a bunch of Gentiles, people who don't know Jesus. And he says, he's, he's saying, you, you guys don't even know who God is, but I'm telling you, God is the one who made the world and everything in it. Since he's Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. Here he is in Greece where they got temples everywhere. He's like, the real God doesn't live in those buildings. He doesn't live in those buildings with human hand, made by human hands. He has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. You think, he said, you think it's about these sacred temples, and it's about these sacred artifacts, and these sacred days, and these sacred items. He says, it's not about that at all. Why do we talk about it? Because some of that old hangs around today. Today, there's so many Christians who think it's about the sacred building that you went to on a sacred day, Sunday, in a church. And there's sacred things. I remember I shared this story before, but uh, when I was a photographer, uh, Beth and I used to do photography for weddings. And I remember going to a church to do a wedding. We did like 60 different weddings. And I came there and I, I saw the pastor uh, of the wedding and he came up to me and he says, hey, sir, he's like, you're the photographer? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I want you, you can only stand here in this corner. This is a holy service. This is a holy building. You can stand here and take pictures. I don't want you distracting anybody. And I'm like, okay, but it would be really cool if I could go up there and take a picture up, up there of the bride coming down the aisle. He's like, absolutely not. He's like, no one is allowed up there. That's the altar. That's the sacred, that's the most sacred part of this whole building. He says it's only for ordained ministers. I was like, well, how about that? I'm actually... An ordained minister as well. And he looks at me and he says, with just this anger in his eyes, he says, don't, don't, don't mess with me. You're not allowed up there. You're not ordained in the right denomination. And I, <laughs> I stood in my corner, and their wedding photos sucked. But, but, you know, greater than that is this thought. Is this thought. If I was not a Jesus follower, as he assumed me not to be, I would never walk into that church again after that experience because somebody wanted to use their sacred building and their sacred artifact and their sacred thing to use against some other person. And Jesus had said, listen, I'm changing the, 
I'm changing the meaning of sacred. It's not about sacred buildings anymore. It's not about sacred relics. It's not about sacred days. It's about something so much more. And Paul writes about to the Corinthians, last verse this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, he says to them, don't you realize? Because they didn't realize. Here's these people with all their temples, all, to all their gods. He's like, don't you realize that you are the temple? Don't you realize that you are the temple of Holy Spirit? He says, it's not about a sacred building. You're the one who's sacred. You, every single life is sacred. Powerful. It means you married someone sacred. Your parenting, sacred. Your parents are sacred. Your teacher, sacred. Your boss, sacred. Your employee, sacred. Your neighbor, sacred. The stranger who walks in the door, sacred. The ones you like and the ones you hate, sacred. He's like, don't you realize that this was never about a temple and never about buildings? It was always about God with people. God with people. That it would be sacred. And you know, we're so used to the thought that women and children have value. In our country, we're used to that. But you realize that that came directly from Jesus? Up until that point, women, you were property. Nobody wants to go back that far. Children, they didn't even name children up until sometimes the age of five because they didn't think they would live. And if they lived from the age of five till 16, it was great, you know, and then they were kind of like as, just as good as slaves until they became men, and then they had value. And Jesus was like, no, let the kids come to me because they're valuable now. And women are valuable. They're not your property. You need to treat them differently. He sowed the seeds of dignity for every single person, and we experience that now. That's why I think every woman should follow Jesus. For that reason alone, he ascribed value to women that they never had before. And so we close with this. What does it matter for you and what does it matter for me? Two, two thoughts. One, if you're, if you're a Jesus follower, you call yourself a Christian, do you have any old stuff hanging around? Has it been about, uh, to be honest, my Christianity really does kind of look like the old. It's something I do on Sunday. If your Saturday night and your Sunday morning look really, really different, there's some old there. Or if you think that you can only hear from God through a person like me, that's old thinking. Where, you know, the priest or the pastor is the one who, who's your go-between between you and God. He's like, I just want a relationship with you, with you. Have you compartmentalized your Christianity? Maybe for you this morning, you're, you know, have, do you ever have thoughts about those people? <laughs> like, I'll invite some people to church. I'll hang out with some people, but I stay away from those people. It's different for all of us. Right? For some, it's like you think, oh, well, those people drink too much. Or those people, they hang out with the hell's angels. Or, you know, those people struggle with their gender identity. <laughs> those people. You realize that Jesus came for those people? That's what following Jesus is all about. He kept trying to tell them, I came for those people. Those people. The old says, pull back. And he says, go into the whole world. Maybe your religion has caused you to use your words or his words to dishonor other people. Like, you, you don't really mean it, but you, you got a verse for people. Oh, they're divorced and remarried. Adulterers. You know how quick we are to judge, and we think we can use God's word to do it. It's like, that's not what it's about. They are sacred. They are sacred. You know, we're looking into building a new building here. But that building, let me just tell you, will never be the church. You are the church. You are the church. And just on another note, I think we should keep the portables because Jesus said it was supposed to be portable. Um, that's for the board members. All right, and last thought, last thought. 
to those of you who are not followers of Jesus yet, and you kind of are skeptical, and you kind of wonder, and you, you, you come to this church, and you feel like, you know, you feel good being here, but you're just not sure if I can really put my trust in this. Can I, can I ask you something? Jesus said the one invitation that he gave to all of them is still on the table today. Would you come and follow me? Not me, follow Jesus. He's saying, would you come follow me? Not follow a list of rules, not follow tradition. Would you come follow me? He's asking you that today. Every single person in this place asking you to come follow him. And I'd encourage you with these two thoughts. One, there's evidence that he gave of who he is. You know, go check out, go check out history. Go check out the prophecy that he wrote in Luke chapter 21, or didn't write, but said, you know, about the temple. Evidence, not just blind faith. Okay, I'll trust some fairy tale stories. Historical evidence that he was who he said he was, because no person can do that. And the second thought is that he gave evidence of what he's done for you. That he cared enough about us as humanity, realizing that we would be, we were broken, lost in sin, having no chance to fix ourselves, redeem ourselves, even help ourselves. And he said, I love them enough. I'm going to send my son. The cost is steep. He's going to have to give his life on a cross, but they're worth it, that I might have relationship with them. My, my thought for you is this. If you answer that invitation where he says, come follow me, and you answer that invitation, can I tell you what will happen? You'll find abundant life. You'll find fearless life. You'll find a life that has meaning. And you'll find purpose in life that you're always searching for. You will find that in, those, in answering those words, follow me. And at the end of life, when you take your last breath, you'll realize that that was not the end, but just the beginning of eternal life. Why would anyone ignore that? Why would anyone reject that? Why would anyone fear that? This morning, he's calling you personally. It's not my words and my voice. I pray that he speaks through me this morning to you that you would answer the call to come and follow him. We pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, that when we were broken, you came to make us new. And when we got it wrong, you came to make it right. Jesus, thank you for the incredible sacrifice that you paid for us on the cross. And I pray, Lord, as we look at the accounts of your life and the, your teachings and that call to come follow you. God, I just pray that you would help us to be courageous, to actually live that out and not just settle for what our culture is called Christianity. Lord, may the world, our world, be changed as a result of people who take you at your word this week. as They go out with you, following you, but living life with you this week. For those here this morning who are sitting on the fence, not sure about knowing you, God, I pray as they just even just say those words, God, I want to follow you, that you would lead them in the next steps. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen.